hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. A Game Warden's children's book, titled A Cowboy in the Woods, is a story of Bobby, a boy who spends the whole summer observing wildlife, writing notes in his notebook, fishing with his dad, and keeping track of all the animals in his neighborhood. While trying to solve a neighborhood mystery, what he discovers is more than just an appreciation for the natural world. The idea for this book came from Wayne Saunders' own childhood experiences, growing up and exploring the woods and streams and lakes and ponds of his native New Hampshire. The love of nature instilled in his childhood led him to a career as a conservation officer. Wayne Saunders is a retired lieutenant conservation officer from the New Hampshire Fish and Game Department. Lindsay Webb is a naturalist, wildlife biologist, and environmental educator. Together, they collaborated with wildlife artist Ashley Mares to produce The Cowboy in the Woods, the story of a boy whose love of nature leads him in unexpected directions. Available at wardenswatch.com and Amazon. Warden's Watch Podcast is now on Patreon, combining the Thin Green Line Podcast and the Warden's Watch Podcast on Patreon to bring member-exclusive extra content both video, audio, and with product deals as well. Become a member to support our podcast and get something extra. Search Warden's Watch Podcast on Patreon. We love our children. We protect them. We guide them. We prepare them for life in the world. With all that we do, from deep in our hearts, we cannot control all things. Life-threatening illnesses and disabilities affect far too many of our children each year. While we cannot change the circumstance, we can make dreams come true. 
dreams to provide hope, to provide spiritual healing and strength, to provide moments of happiness and relief in the hardest of times. We can give a glimmer of light and hope in a time of darkness and despair. Join huntofalifetime.org to help make dreams come true, to provide hope for children with life-threatening illnesses and disabilities. Hunt of a Lifetime is a nonprofit organization fulfilling dreams for hunting and fishing trips to youth 21 and under with life-threatening illnesses and disabilities. Visit huntofalifetime.org to learn how you can make a difference. Please join me, Game Warden Wayne Saunders, and other Game Wardens on our adventures protecting wildlife, saving lives, and having fun, all while serving the public and the natural resources of our planet. Listen to the tales and experiences of those who work in the outdoors while being entertained with stories about encounters with poachers, wildlife investigation, murder investigation, near-death experiences, search and rescue missions, wildlife interactions from game wardens around the country and around the world. When I retired, I realized I couldn't let go of that legacy, but rather wanted to share the passion, the commitment, and the stories of those men and women that call themselves game wardens. This is Game Warden, Wayne Saunders, and this is Warden's Watch. Today on the Warden's Watch podcast, we have Kevin Bear from the Ohio Department of Natural Resources Law Enforcement Division. And I specifically targeted this one for November for our game wardens that listen across the country. Uh, gives you a little perspective into the job we do and the dangers, kind of a little reminder, and the technology that is coming up that we need to be aware of. So I think this is going to be a really good podcast for our peers, Kevin, as well as our listeners, because you know, I'm sure through your career, you've been asked why you carry a gun, why do you have all that stuff on, or is it a dangerous job being a game warden? And as you and I know, it, it's an extremely dangerous job at times. It's an extremely fun job, it's an extremely rewarding job, but it can be an extremely dangerous job. Thanks for joining us today. And can you give us a little rundown on your history before this incident, Kevin? Oh, great. Thanks for having me, Wayne. Uh, I started with the uh, Ohio Department of Natural Resources Division of Wildlife in 1996 with the Wildlife Officer Academy. And upon graduation, I was assigned uh, to Warren County, which is in the southwest side of Ohio, and was the uniformed officer assigned there. And in 1999, I transferred to Adams County, Ohio, which is on the Ohio River, um, in the most southern portion of Ohio. Very rural uh, county, 588 square miles, mostly broken cropland and, and forest uh, population of the county, about 25,000. And I was in that, continued in that position until uh, 2006. In 2006, I went to our investigative section and was in the investigative section all the way up until, well, present. Great. And your incidents, and everybody's going to find out that you were shot in the line of duty. Can, can you bring us through that whole, the day, how it went? Um, I mean, I, I don't think I'm going to do a lot of talking here, Kevin, because uh, I, I want you to, to, to bring us there, to place us there at that time of the incident to, yeah, if you could do that, that would be uh, re- really uh, pretty great. Sure. It was the 20th of December, 2020, 
and it was on a Sunday. It was the last day of our deer gun season. Um, we in Ohio have a week-long deer gun season, and then we have what's called a bonus weekend, which this was the Sunday of the bonus weekend. And we had had information um, about an individual that's a chronic violator that he had been operating in Clinton County, uh, which is uh, southwest Ohio, kind of almost central. And the information we had was that uh, he had been in the area and targeting deer. Um, kind of his MO, MO was just to hunt wherever, shoot from whatever, you know, the, the, the typical kind of individual that uh, we encounter quite a bit. And this individual's got uh, quite a few prior uh, convictions, uh, both wildlife-related and non-wildlife-related. He had a conviction of aggravated vehicular homicide for which he had uh, done five years in prison for. So the uniformed officers in the area had requested that we set up a, a decoy project. And the location that we chose was kind of, of a Y intersection of two roads, um, rural one-lane roads. And um, to the north of the intersection, there was a, a grassy kind of brushy area that had a, a pretty good incline on it. So it made for a very good backstop uh, for the decoy project. So it was in the afternoon. We met about oh, three o'clock or so to get set up, maybe a little bit before. Um, so we loaded up in one of the uniformed officers trucks. Uh, he took me to the location and dropped me off with the decoy and all of my equipment. So we decided that we're going to post uniformed officers and mark patrol vehicles in the area uh, out of sight so that um, if we needed to make a traffic stop or contact, that they would be the contact uh, officers. So the location that I chose the, was kind of right in, in the center of the brush area. It was very obscured. Um, part of our issue with working decoy projects is to make sure that the the decoy is not set up in an area where that's going to draw a lot of attention. Um, and part of our policy is that it can't be uh, a monster deer. Uh, it has to be kind of average. Um, and we take note when we work these projects of how many vehicles go by and never notice or, or don't acknowledge the, the, the decoy being there. So I remember setting up the decoy um, not a monster, just an average size buck. Uh, it's a bedded decoy. Um, the electronics in it don't work from past past uh, run-ins with people shooting it. So <laughs> it's a stationary decoy. And um, I, I remember setting him up, kind of ran out, looked at him, went back and propped him up again to make sure that he looked good. Um, and then I ran back over to the edge of the road where I had stashed my equipment uh, before um, I had a backpack and a seat and, and things so that I could um, observe the decoy from across the road. There was a, a weedy kind of ditch line or fence line across the road that I could get and, and watch the decoy from over there. So I get back to where my equipment is and I'm kind of fiddling around uh, getting my backpack and things ready to go so I can run across the road. And I hear gravel pop in front of me. So I knew there was somebody there, but I, I couldn't really see him um, because of where I was. I was maybe maybe 
five or 10 yards off the, off the edge of the road, kind of in a little sunken area by a tree. Tree was maybe about 10, 12 inches in diameter, a couple other smaller trees there. So <clears throat> I curled up in a ball on the ground on my hands and knees, uh, as small as I could make myself. And I had my portable radio right in front of me. So I called the uniformed officers to let them know, hey, there's somebody here. <clears throat> I can't see them. <clears throat> Excuse me. But uh, let's just see what happens. And as soon as I let my thumb off of the, um, the mic on my portable radio is when he shot me. Um, he sh the, the individual that shot me uh, ended up being behind me. I didn't know he was there. What had happened was when the truck stopped, he had jumped out of the truck and snuck around like north of me behind me in the decoy. So he was directly behind me. Um, he, from where I was, the decoy was a little over a hundred feet. So I was a hundred feet plus from the decoy and <clears throat> where he was, he had to turn, uh, about 180 degrees to shoot me. Um, and he was at a distance of a little less than 50 feet, uh, directly behind me. Um, so more or less, he gave me the good old fashioned, for lack of a better word, Texas heart shot. Mm. Uh, he shot me with a 20 gauge deer slug uh, at a distance of less than 50 feet uh, through a scoped gun um, that included a thermal scope. And the slug entered my left buttocks cheek, butt cheek, and it traversed all the way across my abdomen. And the slug eventually stopped uh, against my diaphragm on my right side. So basically, um, I absorbed all the energy of that deer slug at 50 feet. Uh, my pelvis was shattered, um, and it just caused catastrophic damage to all my internal organs. Um, in the, we've all seen the video or shot uh, water bottles um, or pumpkins or watermelons. Uh, that the whole entire fluid <clears throat> shock wave culminated with my brain. Basically, it it was trapped inside my skull. So uh, none of my organs were spared. Um, I knew um, I knew I was shot. Um, and a little bit of advice along those lines that I'll share my personal experiences. Uh, number one, you will feel being shot before you hear it. Um, and the second thing is you'll hear it and it'll sound completely different. You know, we've all been around a lot of a lot of shooting guns being shot, things like that. It sounds so much different uh, when that muzzle is targeted directly on you. Um, as soon as I was shot, um, the first thing I thought was reverted back to my training. And that was, I need to move. I need to shoot. I need to communicate. Not necessarily in that order, but that is, those are the things that are going to get me through this process. Um I screamed at him to stop shooting, to call 911 uh, loud enough to where some of the neighbors could actually hear me. And he screamed back uh, some obscenities at me. Uh, he claims that he ran up and stood over top of me. Um, in court, he testified to that, but I, I don't recall any of that. Um, I gained and lost consciousness multiple times through the process. Um, but I don't remember him being over top of me because uh, when he yelled back, what he yelled back at me, um, I thought, oh, 
he's going to kill me. Uh, I thought he was going to come up and, and you know, shoot me again at point blank range. And I remember hearing the gravel pop and I thought that maybe they were going to get in the truck and try to run over me. Um, they were, had been known for that as well. You know, shooting deer, if they weren't dead, he'd run over to the truck and leave them in the field. So I was concerned about that as well. So after that, I hit the emergency button on my radio and told them that I'd been shot, uh, that I was in really bad shape to start a helicopter, um, that uh, I, I knew that I was, I knew I was going to die. I mean, I knew, I didn't know what he shot me with, but I knew the way I was going that, uh, it was it was a bad situation, to say the least. So I was trying to move to get away from him, but my legs wouldn't work. Um, I remember looking back, and my legs were very uh, abnormal angles, to say the least. So I was trying to pull myself to get around the tree and get my gun out. Um, and as I was trying to pull, because I kept thinking, okay, if he's going to run up here and shoot me again, I don't want to be in the same place I was when he shot me the first time. So I was trying to drag myself around the tree and get my gun out. And the more I tried, the more that my right side had just quit working. Um, so my left side was still working somewhat. So I'm trying to push with my left foot, drag with my left hand and roll. Um, but unfortunately, a lot of uh, we've all seen deer that have been gut shot um, and the things that are inside come on, you know, get the outside. And that's that was my situation. Um, so I was trying to do anything I could do. And I thought I got to call again on the radio. So I got the radio and, and started calling again on the radio to make sure that the guys knew exactly where I was. Um, our portable radios have GPS transponders on them. So I knew that, that with the emergency call that they would be able to locate that radio. We did have some issues down the road, you know, uh, pre-incident debriefing where, that particular radio would identify with one of our other officers, but it, that side of it was irrelevant. Uh, I think what's important there is we need to be testing. I, I think that just stands to, to say that, you know, it's important to check uh, all of our equipment in real life, you know, kind of above a tabletop exercise. So anyway, uh, I, I got back out on the radio a couple more times um, and it got deadly quiet. So at that point, I started setting goals. Um, and my goal was that I'm, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to stay alive until at least an officer gets to me. And it wasn't too much longer when the first officer, the first uniform officer was able to find me, because, like I said, I was in the brush, rolled up as best I could get. And he reached me and, and said, where have you been shot? And I said, uh, my, my left cheek, my left cheek, because when I got shot, it felt like somebody had hit me with a sledgehammer as hard as they could. And then it felt like molten steel was being poured through my body. Um, and it, that burn just kept increasing, increasing. I was just amazed at how much pain human body is able to produce. So I remember them rolling me around uh, to try and check the wound. And I re I re I'll never forget this, the officer that was there, and he, can, he might have a little different angle on it. But I remember his words, oh, my God, bring more combat costs. I thought, oh, this is, this is probably not good. Mm. So when I heard the first sirens come, I thought, okay, I'm going to stay. I'm just, I got to stay alive 
until they get here so I can tell them where this guy was when he shot me. So, like I said, the first uniformed officer gets there. I tell him he's, he's above me. He's above us someplace. You know, I didn't know if this was like an ambush kind of thing where he was going to shoot the responding officers as well. But I was, I remember thinking that, you know, get, get down behind me. I don't know where he's at, but he was behind, was up, he was above me when he shot. So after that, you know, they start working on me and I thought, okay, I'm just, I got to stay alive until, uh, until the EMTs get here. So I hear more sirens coming and I, I kept losing consciousness and then I would regain consciousness. They would, the officers were just trying to talk to me and, and, and keep me awake. And I remember the first EMT getting there and they started working on me. And I remember them saying the helicopter's in route and I blacked out for, I, I don't know how long, but I, I remember I would regain conscious for a little while and then black back out. And I kept thinking, okay, I, I, I got to stay conscious. I just got to stay conscious. And the longer that I was awake, the harder I was having, harder I, it was to breathe. Um, and the pain was just every time that they would move me was just excruciating. I would, I would lose consciousness. So I remember them loading me on a gurney and I couldn't, they wanted to roll me over flat on the gurney. And I couldn't do it. My legs were uh, kind of going in an unnatural direction and it was just too excruciating. So they load, loaded me sideways on the gurney. And I remember them carrying me out. Um, and then I remember them loading me in the helicopter that um, I remember the blades were spinning when they loaded me in, um, in my experience. And, and that was that if they're loading me hot, that that means that we're going to go quick. And, and we did, I need to get back a hold of the flight nurse because I don't know what she had, but there was some sort of foreign object in the ring. Cause what she was doing sternum rubs with was not her knuckles. I can tell you that <laughs> hmm. there was quite a few of those. I remember just thinking, okay, I, I just got to stay alive to get on the helicopter. I, I you know, I, I had told the officers there my goodbyes. Uh, I told them what my wishes were well, with my family. And I remember thinking, I, I, I just got to, I just got to stay alive to get on the helicopter. So we get on the helicopter and I, I kept thinking, I knew the helicopter ride was about 30, 35 minutes to the closest level one trauma center, which was the university of Cincinnati. I remember thinking I just got to stay alive till I get there because I thought if I make it to the hospital, I'm still alive and I end up dying at the hospital. Well, that's on them. I did my part. I got there alive. <laughs> so <clears throat> I remember landing and the flight nurse said, uh, I know where we're going. We don't have time to wait. Let's go. So the pilot jumped out. I remember as they were unloading me from the helicopter, the, the big the main rotor was still spinning pretty good. I remember them. I just, I remember going, I was on the gurney and I remember going through, seemed like silver doors after silver doors. I, I kept thinking, well, they're just bringing me in through a loading dock. And I remember there was one more set of silver doors that I went through and I looked around. It was a pretty small room and there was a whole bunch of people in that room with a whole lot of light and they were all doing something at the same time to me. And I was kind of amazed that how fast they were working and that they were all doing something to me at the same time. And I remember trying to talk to them and I couldn't, I, I could just barely uh, take in enough oxygen to, uh, to get a, a word out. The last thing I remember was a male voice and they said, okay, let's go ahead and put him completely out. And that was the last thing I remember about being shot. 
Wow. Thanks for sharing that. That's, uh, <laughs> yeah, that, that that's incredible uh, for sure. You know, I wrote down some notes as we were going. It's bringing me flashbacks too. I mean, mine certainly wasn't as severe as yours, but the same things occur, which I think it's really important for officers to know when your training really kicks in and all your thought process of what to do. And I'm sure it was if you ever got shot, but when you got shot, it seems like it came together as far as your mindfulness. Yeah. You know, I remember how many times I practiced um, uh, depressing our emergency call button on, on the radio. And it, it, the thing that I want to stress to people is this, at least for me, when I got shot, things slowed down a lot, but you have time. And the first thing to keep in mind is accept the fact you've been shot. Um, that was the first thing that, that I did. I knew when I felt that sledgehammer pain that hit me in the back um, and it's that feeling of molten steel being poured through my body. Um, I knew I'd been shot and my priority from that point on got real, real focused, but you'll have time. And for me, um, my, my thought process was I got to communicate, I got to move and I got to shoot. Part of that communication process was yelling at the guy, stop shooting. Mm. Um, and secondly was to get on the radio and let them know that I had been shot. And then thirdly was to, you know, to, to move. I didn't want, you know, I did not want to be in the same place I was when he shot me because one, I thought he was going to shoot me again or two, I thought they were going to run over me with the truck. So I thought, well, if I can get around the, on the, around the, the backside of this tree, at least they're going to have to run over the tree to get to me. And then when the, the uniformed officers got to me, I wanted to make sure that I told them that he was somewhere behind me because I remember thinking I didn't get him shot. Uh, so he may be going to shoot my uniformed officers that are coming to my aid. So I wanted to make sure that they knew that this guy was still out there and he was behind us someplace. And that, that training, you, you, you know, when you get shot, accept the fact you've been shot and think I got to do something about it now. Cause you're going to have time. Even with the injuries that I had, it was probably a few seconds, maybe but I had time before my body started shutting down due to the, the, the nerve damage uh, to my spinal cord, the, the shock from blood loss, the um, shock from the, the pain. I had time I could do things. Um, and that's important. You'll have time. So except you've been shot, use that time to focus on your training and, and make sure that you're, you're hitting the things you can hit because that is what, that's what saved me, obviously. And it's worked so many other times, you know, in, in these types of, of shooting situations. And, and, you know, in our conversation yesterday, one thing that struck me is that you requested a certain hospital to go to because you knew of their expertise with their trauma and military experience. Right. Um, in working in Southwest Ohio and working a lot of shooting investigations, I knew that University of Cincinnati was a level one trauma center. So it's very important to know where the level one trauma centers are, you know, in, in the areas that, that we work. And then I also knew that the University of Cincinnati is one of five facilities in the United States that cross trains with our military. And the military surgeons that are that 
work in and out of UC, um, they treat a lot of, of critical wounds that are similar to mine. You know, my wounds would be similar to like uh, an IED attack uh, where vehicles exploded or uh, where uh, an, a soldier has stepped on a landmine. That, that kind of damage was very similar. Um, so having those doctors there benefited me immensely. And it's important that we know these things beforehand because the helicopter that picked me up uh, was not UC's helicopter, but I told them specifically, I want to go to UC. And our field staff there, are, you know, the uniformed officer said, yeah, take him to UC because there's other options there. They could have taken me to a couple other options that probably would not have had the same level of expertise and cares what uh, the University of Cincinnati had. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Hmm. No, that's that's great advice, and that just struck me yesterday when we were talking that, you know, you had the forethought to say, hey, bring me here because I know their experience and what they do. And, uh, yeah, I, I, again, I think that was part of your training and part of your thought process prior to this incident. Yeah, you know, the, 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 the milliseconds count. Mm. When, when you're in those situations, the milliseconds count. And like I said, it's for me, it was setting those small goals. Okay, I got to, I got to, I got to move because this guy just shot me. He might shoot me again. I got to communicate, let him know I've been shot to get help because I couldn't run. Uh, I couldn't, all I could do was basically try and pull myself and roll downhill to, 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 to seek more, more cover and concealment at that point. Yeah. And the other thing I want to stress is, and you did in the beginning, is the placing of the decoy. It sounds very similar, and most of the game wardens probably have the same SOPs, standard operating procedure. Safety is the utmost thing when we use this, safety of the public, safety to ourselves. So we we, we take great care in setting up a decoy detail. So, and it sounds like you did the same and just uh, the the unknown came into the, the placement of that, that they circled around you. Which, uh... Yeah, and I, I think we can put it uh, in the simplest terms would be either I was the first thing he saw through his scope or the second thing he saw through his scope. Um, this guy had such a history. I'm confident in knowing what the other others involved said that he's, you know, had said when when they saw the, the decoy, because like I said, I had it placed very obscurely. You know, it was not visible. It wasn't like it was on the on the side of the road. It was you, you'd really have to be looking hard to see the decoy. And I always keep note of, you know, like I said before, how many vehicles go by and don't even acknowledge that the, there's a decoy there. So one of two things happened. I'll leave it up to this and, and everybody can make their own judgment was. He, he exited that truck, uh, got out, snuck around on the high ground above the decoy, and he was a little over 100 feet from the decoy, if you would imagine, in, in a triangle. So to his left, 180 degrees from where I was is where the decoy was at about 100 feet. So he had a thermal scope on the attached to the 20-gauge shotgun that had a scope on it as well. 
So he was pretty accomplished at being able to uh, make both those things work for him. So he had to turn 180 degrees and lock on me at 50 feet. It was less than 50 feet from where he shot me. So one of two things happened. Either A, he just started scanning that area, and the first heat signature he saw, he shot. Or B, he looked at the decoy first, which had antlers on it, and decided, they've got me. Where are they at? I'm going to make them pay. Mm-hmm. Um, remind, you know, I was courting the ball as small as I could be down in a little depression with no antlers whatsoever, and he's looking at me through a scope at 50 feet. You know, so I I invite anybody to make the deductions of whether he decided that he just shot at a heat signature or that uh, he was able to see me and think yeah, they got me. I'm going to make them pay. Um, mm. After he shot me, he offered no no aid. He threw the gun down, detached the thermal scope, detached the other scope, threw it down and ran and was caught over a mile away. When he was caught, uh, he tried to basically throw his buddy under the bus because there was three total. And still, um, this guy's a, com- a complete sociopath. If you looked up sociopath in the dictionary, there's a picture of him. So, like I said, there's people out there like this. Um, he's not the only one, to say the least. He's the type of person, like I said, this was, I did end up having to be revived. Um, so, technically, this was his second homicide. And uh, I honestly believe that uh, when he gets out, uh, which he's in prison now, uh, when he gets out, uh, I think he'll have more homicides in his future. I've in my career, I've dealt with two serial killers and he is very similar in, in that regard. Um, he has, he's not the type of person that you can play on their emotion or play on their conscious, uh, for him. Uh, he takes the mindset of he's smart and everybody else. And he does what he wants to do to ultimately boost his pleasure or boost what he wants to do. And, you know, you, he's not the type of individual you can break down in an interview uh, with their conscience. Um, it's just not there. You know, uh, he does have a little bit of a conscience, but it's not something that you can drill into and, and, and get him. Oh, yeah, I, I messed up. I, I, I did that. He's not that individual. And those types of people are in every walks of life. For sure. So and the officers are a first dealing with you and trying to get out get you out and get you on that helicopter and then they have a active shooter they have a crime scene there's all kinds of things going on as you're being transported to the hospital there that that, that they're dealing with right yeah. <laughs> there's little things I can remember along the way I mean I can't put them in order time frame wise but there's little things I can remember and I can remember as they rolled me on the gurney and uh, I looked on the ground next to me and there was a syringe laying there. And I remember telling one of the uniformed officers, Hey, pick up that syringe before somebody gets hurt here. <laughs> that got a rise out of them. And then as, as they were loading in the helicopter, one runs up and hands the flight nurse an unspent 20 gauge deer slug and tells them, take this to the OR. This is what they're looking for. <laughs> inside me (laughs) (laughs) and i need to ask the trauma uh team (laughs) how that went but there's little things like that that i can remember along the way but um yeah they did end up did end up recovering the slug it was up against my diaphragm on the right side there's still quite a few pieces in my pelvis that um of course they're going to be there 
forever now, but just little little antidote things like that that I can remember along the way. It was pretty that that side of it that was pretty funny. Yeah, and it'll be two years ago this December twentieth. And can you tell us what you, you've gone through? I mean, I mean, just the, the initial stay in the hospital. It had to be just in, insane. And then yesterday you were at physical therapy for it. I mean, we're two years out and you're still going through physical therapy. I mean, that's this is a long road. And this is, you know, I had a discussion with my son this morning uh, about this and about doing this interview. And, you know, I told him that you were shot with a 20-gauge slug. And, you know, I'm I'm a big slug guy. When it comes to bear hunting, I like, you know, 12-gauge slug is, is what's pretty effective, and I always preach that, and, and, and it, it stopped him in his tracks. He's like, he got hit with a slug, Dad. He goes, you said that's the probably the most efficient way to kill something, the bigger hole. And I said, yeah. I said, so this guy went through some trauma that I can't even believe that we're having this discussion today. It's just, it's a miracle, I think. I just, um, so I'm very happy that we can have this discussion, Kevin and share it but uh yeah can you tell us about the the haul you had sure uh i think you're you're, you're trying to say the nice way of saying if you're going to be dumb you got to be tough kind of thing <laughs> well well ron allis um, said it uh, said it best and he's like this is going to sound way, uh, bad wayne he said if there was anybody to get shot and survive it kevin bear was the guy he said that sounds bad but he's like if you know kevin bear he was he, he was tough he was into martial arts he had the right mindset he he spoke extremely high of you and ron Allis was a your assistant chief when we retired i think uh mm-hmm. so certainly um spoke very highly of you and that's he's like this is going to sound weird and he goes but it, it, it's the case and he's, he thought very highly of you beforehand and no, I, no, I appreciate the kind words and, and you know i told the guys that were there that set the project up you know, because they were dealing with a lot afterwards, and they still are. We all are. Mm. Um, but I told him, hey, look, you know, he was going to shoot somebody that day. And of all the people that he could have shot, I was probably the best candidate because my kids are older and grown and, and you know, all out of the house. Everybody else there have young kids and, you know, a lot going on in life. Not that I don't, but I just I, I kind of joked with them along that process of I was probably the best candidate. Mm. So <clears throat> to go kind of back and run you through the process I've been through so far. Uh, once I got to the hospital, went into surgery immediately. Uh, I don't remember. Like I said, I can remember tidbits along the way, but I was in extreme shock. They operated on me continuously. The, the, I know the, the one trauma surgeon was commenting about how much grass and debris and just garbage. And I was like, yeah, I, I acquired all that through the wound when I was trying to roll and, and get away from the guy. But I remember, I can't really put things in the time frame. I remember being conscious uh, for a little while. And then I, then I don't have any recollection, but I did a total of 28 days in the ICU. Um, they gave me over 22 units of blood. I've had 15 surgeries to date. And I had to be revived on the 28th of December again. I was going downhill. They weren't real sure why I was going downhill as bad as I was. And uh, I remember a little bit of that day. My wife, they would let her in to see me for just a couple hours a day with COVID and that going on at the time. But I just wanted her to give me something. I I wanted an orange. And I remember 
looking out in the ICU pod there, the nurse's station, there were some oranges on the, on the, um, on the counter. I wanted an orange really bad. They wouldn't give me one. Obviously they wouldn't give me anything because they were going to take me back into surgery because I was crashing. And, uh, my wife said, this better be the last thing you remember about me is not giving you an orange, <laughs> but I went into surgery and crashed out there. They had to revive me. And the only, well, through uh, my heart just stopped. I was out of blood and, and I had gone septic. I will tell you this, that, uh, if you're ever in a situation where, uh, you have CPR administered to you, they will always pick the biggest individual there to do the CPR on you because, I asked them afterwards, it was in March, I was like, who in the world did you have doing CPR on me? And the trauma coordinator told me who it was. And I'll be daggone if it wasn't the biggest doctor there was, because my ribs and chest soared all the way through like March, April. So yeah, I endured 15 surgeries so far. My last one was this past April. Uh, probably have one, maybe two more to go, uh, because a lot of things became in priority. And what they wanted to do initially um, I wasn't able to sustain them, so they would just kind of push it off. And now we're kind of at that point of we do a little bit, we see how my body reacts to it, and then um, make a plan, you know, down the road. Um, I did 28 days in the intensive care unit uh, level one there at UC, um, and then they moved me over to the regular hospital. And I did 11 days there uh, in the regular hospital. And my biggest issue, well, I had a lot of issues, but one of my biggest issues was all the wound care. Uh, we had to, they had to change wound care, wound managing twice a day. Every, well, it was, initially it was three times. Um, and then they went to twice a day. And when they would roll me over to change the wound packings and things uh, and repack with combat gauze, I'd like to see all the combat gauze they used on me in one place. But anyway, that was almost like being shot all over again. Uh, even though they were able to administer uh, a little bit of pain meds, it still was like being shot all over again, literally. So <clears throat> the wound care was pretty extensive. I did 11 days in the regular hospital at, in University of Cincinnati. And then uh, after that, they transferred me to an inpatient uh, care center, rehab center, which was the Drake Center in Cincinnati. I did 50 days there of intensive, seven days a week, physical therapy, and just basically getting me to the point of being ready to start working hard. It was, they challenged me in ways that I, I didn't even know I was being challenged and, and they would, they knew what to do and where they didn't work on. I remember the first time that they tried to get me up, we thought we would we would thought we would just see if I could bear any weight at all with my pelvis and my spine. And I remember being kind of towards the upright position and then my pelvis shifted and and then we had to delay that for a while but it started getting me up there so I could just take a few steps here and there and just trying to rebuild back uh, as as best best they could so I did 50 days there and then I was discharged to come home and I had home health care that came in to help my wife uh, with the wound care and just getting me to the point to where I could sustain myself on my own a little bit. Um, I had home therapy that came in um, three days a week there at, at, at home. And then they graduated, graduated me up to uh, outpatient therapy three days a week, which uh, I still do that three times a week, try to vary that schedule. I'm in the position where we're mostly on uncharted ground. So 
what we try and do is is find different ways to get my body to react. I still have quite a bit of, of issues on my right side, but they're getting a little bit better. I've had some of the best therapists and the best doctors um, anywhere. They've gotten me a long way. Um, in fact, a couple of, of the folks have commented that, uh, you know, you just got to you just got to keep going. And that's kind of the mindset I, I said earlier, you know, in these situations, when I was said, you get, you know, if you're going to be, if you're going to be dumb, you got to be tough. What I mean by that is this, you just have to do what they're telling you and, and kind of be dumb about it. Don't question it. Give them feedback, but you just got to get that mindset of this is the only thing I'm doing. Um, this therapy is the most important thing I need to do. It's painful. Uh, it's it, it's excruciating at times, but this is what gets me along. And, and set those long, what I call them, check marks. I'll do a particular activity, and then I won't come back to it for six or nine months. And those are the measurements that you see the gains on. The day-to-day things, not so much, because you'll gain and, and maybe lose on a daily or weekly basis, but it's those long-term things, those six, nine months out are uh, you know where you where you can see those measurable gains i've had people say oh you know the only easy day is yesterday and say, no no yesterday was no fun today's no fun tomorrow's not gonna be any fun either but it's those those long-term things that that you can hit and and you look back and say wow yeah i, I remember doing this a while ago and and how it was how it felt and what i was able to do and and what i'm able to do now those are those are the things that um that show the, the, the progression of, of, of healing. I, I always say my physical therapist was the only woman that ever made me cry. <laughs> and I think, I swear that was her goal on some days. So, but you're right. The, uh, yeah. the, the care after is so important to how you recover. And where are you at today? I mean, I see you on the, the Zoom video here that we post on our Patreon channel. Are you, are you walking? Or are you... I mean, a shattered pelvis. I, I'm just. Uh... Yeah. Um, initially, the the uh, with the pelvis, they wanted to go in and stabilize it and try to recover some of the slug fragments that are in my right hip socket. And because I had crashed out uh, on the 28th and was having so much issues with additional surgeries after that, they decided uh, just to let it heal on its own. It's not straight. It's it's kind of it it didn't heal the way it was, but. Um, and there's some differences there. Um, it's still coming down the road. I'm probably looking at hip replacement on my right side, but uh, we'll we'll get that as far as we can before we before we cross that bridge. Um, as far as me physically, yeah, I'm walking. I, I can walk pretty good on level surfaces when it gets uneven or, or inclines. Um, I have to concentrate a little bit more. Um, there's a difference in my strength on my right side versus my left side. Uh, a lot of things are starting to come back, um, but it, it's it's just one inch at a time. Like uh, I was having a lot of issues with my, and you can probably notice that my voice has gone more hoarse from now versus when we started. Uh, I've got a lot of stenosis and scar tissue in my, my in my trachea for being on the ventilator as long as I was and uh, where the slug stopped against my diaphragm, that part of my diaphragm doesn't function correctly. So we're going down that road for all the things that happened to me and the way that they recovered. It's just, it's astonishing. I was on ventilator for a total of 12 days. My kidney shut down. My right kidney actually uh, was damaged by the slug. I was on continuous dialysis for 10 days. 
type one diabetic because my pancreas quit working. Uh, it started working again, took out a lot of my, well, basically all my internal organs have had, uh, have had damage and been repaired. I, I got a free, uh, tummy or stomach reduction. I didn't order that, but I got one of those. <laughs> Changed my appetite a little bit, but as far as um, me, you know, me gaining brain function is starting to come back. It's slow. Obviously, in these type of situations, nobody gets a free pass with the PTSD side of things. So working through that, um, gaining grounds there. But yeah, it's just like like I said before, the doctor said I'm, I'm kind of on uncharted ground. So where we're gaining back um, is good. I'm able to drive again. I started driving this past June. Um, and I just, I, I kind of have learned my new limits. Um, sometimes, um, you know, just trying to gain back endurance. And a lot of that too is thought process. My brain starting to reroute those connections to be able to cognitively think that's the, that's a big challenge because there's some things that are just there and so crisp. And there's other things that just aren't there. I don't have much memory of the six months prior to being shot. So sometimes those are kind of like a Christmas morning all the time. It, that, that side of it's, it's kind of bizarre. And, and the, the term for that is, is post-traumatic or pre-traumatic amnesia. And basically your brain kind of just blocks that part out, the unimportant stuff. So yeah, it, it's a process. Um, still, you know, I still see me doing therapy for quite a while because we're still gaining, but yeah, you know, it's just, I gain little things all the time. Mm. Yep. Like you said, it's a process and you're still going through it. Yeah. I'll remember December 20th for sure. Kevin. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's going to be marked in my brain from now on as far as, uh, an alive date. That's, uh, that's, yeah. uh, what, what a story of survival and I, I just really appreciate you sharing it because I know sometimes that can be difficult. For me, I think it's good to share it because it seems to build up inside me and then sharing it, you know, kind of relieves some of that pressure. So, um, and, and to me, it's anything that we can do, obviously, you know, like we've talked about, it's kind of therapeutic to share, but also more positive that we can build from this situation, the better. You know, the reality of it is, it's not the bad thing that happened to me. It's what we do afterwards. Mm. And, you know, my goal is as long as I'm able, uh, I want to be able to share. I want to be able to inform folks. And then, you know, hey, maybe down the road when, you know, the bad day happens, somebody else remembers that crazy guy from Ohio that got shot on December 20th of 2020 said to do this or this is what he did. So I'm going to I'm going to do that. To me, that's what it's all about, is try and spin a positive from, from any negative that we can. Absolutely. And people will learn from this. Officers will learn. You know, the general public understands that the dangers that, you know, game wardens are out there. So next time you're in a restaurant and people are like, why do you carry a gun? You know, that's... Um, because it's a dangerous job. And a lot of other law enforcement understands that, you know, that you deal with guys with guns. And, uh, boy, when you said what the scenario was and that maybe he changed his mind from that deer to the game warden, that uh, it's the, the hair on the back of my neck just stood up. And I'm just like, I wonder how many times that we've encountered these people that that runs through their minds. Yeah, you know, the, he's just one of many that walk amongst us everywhere. You know, he's not an isolated individual. Um, he's one of many out there. And, you know, 
what gets us through those encounters with those types of people is our training experience and our tactics. Yes. Um, and that's what's so important is training, you know, and your tactics. And then, you know, call upon your experience as well. You know, for him to do what he did, there's no doubt, you know, lay the physics out for what he accomplished and where he accomplished it. There's no doubt in my mind why he shot me. No doubt whatsoever. Knowing him, knowing his history, knowing how he is now. Yeah, there's no doubt why why he decided to shoot me. And what was his sentence for shooting you? Uh, He was charged both in the state system and the federal system because he was under firearms disability uh, from previous convictions. So on the state side, he was sentenced to four and a half years mandatory, which he appealed that and his appeal was unsuccessful there. On the federal side, he was sentenced nine years, 364 days. So once he's completed with his state term, then he'll do his federal time as well. Uh, he has appealed his federal sentencing. See how that plays out. <clears throat> but he's the type of individual that appeals everything. Mm-hmm. Um, he, on his previous aggravated victim homicide conviction, he appealed that as well. So that's just kind of, you know, he had three attorneys represent him in these proceedings. So that's just the kind of individual that he is. He has some enablers in his life, to say the least. Yeah. The sentence doesn't seem to fit the crime in this case. So. Yeah. You know, and everybody says that. Well, you know, it could have been this, could have been that. And it's it, true. I mean, you know, it's 14 and a half years. That's a tough sentence, obviously. It's, it's not like less than five and it's not like a full 20, in my opinion. But what I'm more concerned about is when he gets out, I don't think he's done shooting people or killing people. I just don't, mm-hmm. um, you know, he was on probation on parole. It doesn't make a difference. When he, when he was out on bond, he was committing more crime. He got arrested while he was out. He never complied with his conditions of release ever. We had information. He was back out again, you know, while he was out on bond on both the state and federal side, that's just the type of person that he is. And like, I can't stress enough. He's not, the only one. Uh, he's not a unique situation. There is so many more individuals like him that walk amongst us everywhere all the time. Mm. Well, thank you. Kevin Bear, Ohio Department of Natural Resource Law Enforcement, shot in the line of duty December 20th, 2020. Thank you for telling your story, Kevin, of survival. You're welcome. Thank you, Wayne, for having me. Please join me, Game Warden Wayne Saunders, and other Game Wardens on our adventures protecting wildlife, saving lives, and having fun, all while serving the public and the natural resources of our planet. Listen to the tales and experiences of those who work in the outdoors while being entertained with stories about encounters with poachers, wildlife investigation, murder investigation, near-death experiences, search and rescue missions, wildlife interactions from game wardens around the country and around the world. When I retired, I realized I couldn't let go of that legacy, but rather wanted to share the passion, the commitment, and the stories of those men and women that call themselves game wardens. This is Game Warden, Wayne Saunders, and this is Warden's Watch. You're listening to the Waypoint Podcast Network, brought to you in part by HuntStand, the number one hunting and land management app. I'm Will Cooper, host of HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast. For even more content, be sure to watch the original films from HuntStand Presents on the Waypoint TV channel every Tuesday at 10 p.m. Eastern. Visit waypointtv.com to learn more.